Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the victory in Christ. And, and as we see both sickness and death in this world around us, we recognize that this world is not functioning as you intended it when you created it in Eden. And we recognize that in Christ that there is a victory that has been achieved to be fully applied here in the near future. And we long for that day when all sickness and death is, is eradicated. Uh, we ask now that you will uh, remember and step into the lives of Cammy uh, and Dennis and, and bring healing as you know is best. Give the doctors and nurses the wisdom to make the interventions that will be best in the circumstance and comfort both of their hearts and give them the, the peace that they can witness your love even in these difficult circumstances. We pray that you will be with Christy and, and, and the rest of the family and comfort them in their loss and, and help their hearts move to the vision of your soon return that we can all be with our loved ones again. And there are others who've lost loved ones too, and we ask for, the, for their comfort and their encouragement as they look forward to the second coming. Be with us as we study your word today that you will give us wisdom and insight that we can uh, leave here knowing that we have spent time close with you and close with each other. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And then one more announcement. I received a copy of, uh, in the mail of this book, Did God Kill Jesus Instead of Killing Us? by Kevin J. Mullins. And I read it. It's a little small book. It's very easy to read. Quick read. I thought it was very well done. It's got some resources in there and quotes from, from other authors documenting some of the, the errors out there in the Christian landscape. And, uh, and you can get a free digital copy of this at lastmessageofmercy.com. You can download a PDF and you can read this yourself. And, and if you'd like, uh, I think it's a great resource. I think it does a great job of articulating the, the contrast between the healing model in the, in the imperial law model. But lastmessageofmercy.com, and that will be in the notes as well if people want to, to catch that link. We are doing lesson two in the quarterly Ephesians, and the title is God's Grand Christ-Centered Plan. And if we read the second paragraph in Sunday's lesson, it says, Paul praises God for the fact that he blesses, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. That the blessings are spiritual suggests they come from the Spirit, pointing to the closing of Paul's blessing, which celebrates the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believers. What do you think the work of the Holy Spirit is? To help us face this world of sin and stuff to give us the strength and courage to go through it. Okay, yep, he's comforter. Yep, yes. By the remedy that... Christ had achieved. Well, I like that, to apply the remedy that Christ has achieved. You know, Paul, uh, in, in Acts chapter 19, 1 through 6, we read this story, and Paul's at Corinth. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road uh, through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. So he's coming actually to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, and we're talking about Ephesians, so he's asking the people at Ephesus, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Have you heard there's a Holy Spirit? They didn't know. So Paul asked, Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was the baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in other languages and prophesied. What is this talking about? When you were baptized... Did you have an experience like this? Somebody placed hands on you and then you began to speak in other languages? That would have been scary. It would have been scary. <laughs> Maybe that's why God's grace prevented you from having that. <laughs> no, I, I really, you know, I, I sometimes think about some of the things you... Have you ever considered the stories in Scripture? How many stories in Scripture have you read where an angel of the Lord appears and talks to somebody in Scripture? Many, many stories. Okay? Imagine tonight you're praying and an angel appears in your room and talks to you. Is your first response one of comfort and peace or fright? Right. <laughs> Isn't that right? And, and of course, that, I think that was human because oftentimes the first thing they say is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. <laughs> okay. So I think sometimes the Lord's uh, grace does uh, maybe limit some of these experiences to keep from frightening us. Can we be said, so here's some, let's, let's talk about the Holy Spirit a little bit. Can a person be saved through Jesus' sacrifice without the inner working of the Holy Spirit? No. 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 Is salvation the process of cognitive acceptance of the facts, the truth, 
that Jesus is God, that Jesus is our substitutionary sacrifice, that Jesus achieved all that's necessary. We cognitively accept those facts. Does that save us? No. Can one be saved by this mental cognitive acceptance of a list of 28 doctrinal beliefs, attest to them publicly, go through a ceremonial washing, claim the blood of Jesus as the payment price to erase the record book of their sins that they've ever committed, does that result in salvation? Has it ever been presented to you that it does? Or does salvation actually require the inner working of the Holy Spirit to transform the heart from fear and selfishness to love and trust? So these people over in the jungles and stuff that have never heard of God or the Bible or anything, the Holy Spirit has told them the truth, has presented like them. So, so she asks those people over in, you know, she says jungles and places, but remote areas that have never had the gospel brought to them, the Holy Spirit is, has what? Has shown them the truth. Has shown them the truth. Has, I would have said, changed their heart. So you can't have a Holy Spirit without... Well, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 12, those who have not heard the law, and that's a, a, a shorthand for scripture or Torah, those who have not heard the law, the scripture, but do by nature the things contained in the law show that they are a law unto themselves, that the law has been written on their hearts. Now, what's the new covenant experience? The law is written on their hearts. And so that's a way of saying a list of rules are tattooed by a surgeon on the pump inside your chest. No, the heart is the inner working motive, desire, and it's the law is the law of love and truth replaces the law of sin and death, which is fear and selfishness. And so Paul is saying, he starts in Romans 1, chapter 20, that God's divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood by what he has made so that men are without excuse. So God's character and principles are revealed in nature. That's chapter 1, verse 20. And then he goes over, and it just, remember, there's no chapter and verse divisions as he wrote, and he, he's making his argument, and he then comes over to verse chap, chapter 2, verse 12, and those who have not heard the law, but do by nature the things contained in the law, because they've seen the principles of God as revealed in nature, then the Holy Spirit takes those truths, and they identify with them, and they're written in their heart, and they're transformed. That is salvation. It really surprises me how many Christians try to narrow that and limit it. God's plan of salvation. We don't realize how wide and deep it is. So let me clarify a couple things, though, because some people might misunderstand what I just said. Does that mean for the person in the jungle whose heart is renewed by the working of the Holy Spirit because they've seen the truth as revealed in nature, as Paul makes this case, does that mean they're being saved through another avenue or means than Jesus Christ? No. No, No, the Bible says there's only one name under heaven whereby men are saved. That's Jesus Christ. Okay, they're still being saved through Jesus. But they may not even understand it. Never heard his name. Because what the Holy Spirit is doing in them is is applying what Jesus has achieved in their life, even though they've never heard of it. And so if you want to put more Bible puzzle pieces together, you read in Zechariah when it talks about in the new heaven and the earth, they will say to him, where did you get these wounds in your hand and your side? And he says, I received these at the house of my friends. Now, when you get to heaven and you meet Jesus, will you actually say, Jesus, where did those wounds come from? That's right. We won't. That's not going to be. But if anybody asks that question, what's that an indication of? They don't know. Okay. And so there will be people who haven't heard the gospel story, but have responded to the truth, and then they still receive the victory of Christ applied by the Holy Spirit in the inner working of their heart. So it's still through Christ that they come. Another another avenue where they're still through Christ. We just Paul's argument in Romans one twenty is that. God's divine nature is seen in what he has made, so that men were excuse. In other words, nature, the book of nature is revealing truth. And according to scripture, including in Ephesians, who's the member of the Godhead through which all things are made? And without him, nothing is made that has been made. So Jesus is the member of the Godhood who created this creation. And so if you learn about God through revelations that are, uh, that are built into nature, that is still coming through Christ. Every avenue is through Christ. So what, back to the working of the Holy Spirit. In the book, uh, Desire of Ages, it describes the working of the Holy Spirit uh, in our salvation in this way. And I really like how this is described, but I'm going to put it out there, and I want you to think about it. Do you agree with this, or do you think this is missing something, or do you think there's a better way to say it? In describing to his disciples the office work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus sought to inspire them with the joy and hope that inspired his own heart. He rejoiced because of the abundant help he had provided for his church. The Holy Spirit was the highest of all gifts he could solicit from his Father for the exaltation of his people. 
the Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent. And without this, the sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. The power of evil had been strengthening for centuries, and the submission of men to this satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead, who would come with no modified energy, but in the fullness of divine power. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's redeemer. It is by the Spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the Spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature. Christ has given his Spirit as a divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his own character upon the church. Upon the, upon the Spirit, Jesus said, excuse me, of the Spirit, Jesus said, he shall glorify me. The Savior came to glorify the Father by the demonstration of his love, so the Spirit was to glorify Christ by, the, by revealing his grace to the world. The very image of God is to be reproduced in humanity. The honor of God, the honor of Christ, is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. I'm going to pause there for a second. Do you understand that that is describing the actual reversal of what Satan is working to do? Satan's primary goal on this planet is to destroy the image of God in people and to make people be bearers of satanic character and satanic image. We were created in the image of God, to be image bearers of the creator. That is not just physical image bearers, but character image bearers, to love like God loves, to be honest, to be people of integrity, to be loyal, to be faithful, to be true, to be kind, to respect other people. We were to be the image bearers of God. And Satan wants to destroy that and make us the image bearer of demons. Christ came to reverse all that and to restore God's image into the living temple. The, 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 remember Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And we are to be the, the place where God's living law is written and lived out. Yes. So why do many Christian churches say you can never be perfect on earth? Because, uh, so, so anybody want to answer that besides me? It's a very straight and easy question. What's the first thing you should, when people are starting, what law lens, okay? So if you, if you, she, her question is, why do so many Christians think you can't be perfect? What law lens? If you have a certain law lens, say human imperial law lens, then what's the answer to what perfection is? Rule keeping, behaviors, deeds, actions. It has nothing to do with really motive of the heart. But if you have the design law, then you understand that it is not actually about how well you carry out deeds or tasks. It's about how pure the motive of your heart is. That's it. And so Paul says in, in Romans that sin, whatever is not of faith or trust, is sin. When the heart is restored to trust and you have that heart's desire to always honor God and do what he wants, you still may fail in the accomplishment of the task because we're, fo we're, we're, we're weak, we, we have foibles, we trip, we fall, we stumble, but our heart is not in rebellion because we love God and we love others and our intention is to honor God. And then when we slip and stumble and we realize that that actually didn't work out like our heart's desire was, we grieve. Oh, what a wretched man and I. Sometimes I find I'm doing the things I didn't even want to do. That heart is in grief of that heart is still perfect. As Job, we have examples of this. Job was perfect and righteous in all his ways. No one on the earth like him. Does that mean he was sinless? No, it means he'd been restored to love and trust and nothing could shake him out of his loyalty. No loss of, of finances, no loss of family, no f physical health problems, no theological debates. Nothing could shake him from his love and loyalty to God. He didn't understand it, but he was so faithful in his love and devotion, that he said, even if God were to kill me, I will still trust him. That's a perfect person. You see that in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the plain of Dura. And they get confronted by Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar gives them another chance. And they say to Nebuchadnezzar, we know that our God can deliver us from the fire, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow. They didn't know what God would do. They know what he could do. But they were so committed to their faithful loyalty to God that they would rather die than break that trust or faith. That Therefore, they were perfect. 
Okay, And that's what Bible perfection is, a transformation of heart, devotion, and loyalty to have in your heart to always honor God, love God, and love others, uh, regardless of how well you, you, you carry out the task. Okay, um, keep going with the quote. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The preaching of the word will be of no avail without the continual presence and aid of the Holy Spirit. This is the only effectual teacher of divine truth. Only when the truth is accompanied to the heart by the Spirit will it quicken the conscience or transform the life. One might be able to present the letter of the Word of God. He might be familiar with all its commands and promises, but unless the Holy Spirit sets home the truth, no soul will fall on the rock and be broken. No amount of education, no advantages, however great, can make one a channel of light without the cooperation of the Spirit of God. The sowing of the gospel seed will not be as be a success unless the seed is quickened to life by the dew of heaven. Before one book of the New Testament was written, before one gospel sermon had been preached, after Christ's ascension, the Holy Spirit came upon the praying apostles. Then the testimony of their enemy was, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. So back to the question, the Holy Spirit. They didn't know what the Holy Spirit was. Do we know what the Holy Spirit Do we actually, historically, I can tell you my upbringing in, in the church did not emphasize the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it diminished it. It was, it, if, you, if you want the Holy Spirit, that, that might be a little bit on the, uh, you know, Pentecostal. the Pentecostal kind of uh, crazy side. Okay? I mean, it, we really, it was, there, was a, there was a real fear of the Holy Spirit working in the church. You, have you seen that too? Or just me? Yeah. I, I, certainly there are false spirits that we should be thoughtful about and not drawn into emotionalism or, or hysteria because when the Holy Spirit comes, we get the fruits of the Spirit. And the last fruit of the Spirit is self-control. We get ever greater self-governance and deportment and calmness like Jesus demonstrated in Crucifixion Weekend. We get that. We don't get more out of control, falling on the floor, flopping around like a fish. We don't get that from the Holy Spirit. Okay, So there are evidences that one can look at, but that doesn't mean something happened here and in, in Acts, you read about in Pentecost, where the observers thought that they were drunk. So what was that? I'm going to tell you it was excitement. It was joy. It was, it was, it was a power of a heart's change. They, they were probably shouting for joy. They were cheering. They were praising God because their hearts were moved. And people thought, man, that's a lot of noise in the middle of the day. You must be drinking. Now, that's a different spirit. So in what we just read in this book, Desire of Ages, did you read anything in here about the process of salvation? The Spirit was given as a regenerating agent. Without this, the sacrifice of Christ would have no avail. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead. It is the Spirit that makes effectual what the, has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. The, the Spirit has been given as a divine power to overcome every hereditary and cultivated... Do you see anything in here about salvation? Yes or no? Wow. Is there salvation being described here? This is salvation. Do you hear anything legal being described? No. Get your mind around that. Salvation has nothing penal legal in it. Nothing. Salvation is healing, restorative, recreative, renewal. It's the power of God to make people back into his image. That's what salvation is. In fact, the, the, the roots to salvation, the, the Greek, if you want to save somebody, the Greek is sozo. It actually means to heal. If you, if you got bit by a rattlesnake and ended up in the ER and you said to the doctor, please save me, are you asking for forgiveness? <laughs> No. How about if it was something you did wrong, though? How about, how about you disobeyed, uh, your parents had warned you about not doing drugs, and some friends induced you to take something, you didn't know what it was, or some pill they gave you, and you took this pill, and suddenly you're having chest pain, you're having trouble breathing, or you feel like you're going to die, and you say to your parents, maybe, uh, uh, or a doctor, please save me. Are you asking for forgiveness? Healing. Healing. 
That's what salvation always is, yes. But there is an aspect of, of it uh, when the paralytic was let down through the roof, for example. Jesus' first thing to him is, your sins have been forgiven. Yes, why, why was that? Because, well, why was that? Explain the reason. The people thought his illness was caused by his sins. So, so in the mind of the sinner, mm-hmm. there was a lie that they can't have healing unless they're forgiven first. And so God met them where they were to relieve them of their fear that they were under condemnation, remove the condemnation by telling them the truth that they're forgiven. Now, was it true God forgave them? Yes. Was it true? Yes, it was true. They were forgiven. That's true. Okay? Was it true that they were ever not forgiven by God? No. No. For God so was so wrathful at the world... Jesus came as his only begotten son to die to pay a penalty to appease his father's wrath so the father be willing to forgive. Isn't that what the Bible says? For God so loved the world that he gave. Do you think that was a free, free gift or do you think that was a, a coercive gift? Yes, God was always for us. Romans eight thirty one. If God is for us, who can be against us? Yes, always, always the case. Well, Christ also gave a reason for the forgiving of sin as well, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sin. Yep, so this was a demonstration of, the, of his power, yep. We're going to come back to the forgiveness question in, in a little bit. Um, we need the Holy Spirit in our hearts to renew, enlighten, enable, empower, cleanse, regenerate, recreate us back into Christ-likeness. Understand, Jesus singly and alone, by himself, in the humanity he assumed, walking that 33-and-a-half-year journey in his human uh, brain and abilities, procured, overcame all evil, all sin, and procured the remedy to the sin problem. And in the human person of Jesus Christ, the species human was perfected. He was a full human being, a real human being, and he perfected humanity. And even if no other human being ever accepted salvation, because Jesus became really human, the species human will always live for all eternity in Jesus. So the human race was saved in the person of Jesus. He simultaneously, in doing that, though, achieved what was necessary to save any other human being who trusts him. They call that the remedy. Now, we'll describe that in a little more detail. But Jesus procured the remedy. The Holy Spirit administers the remedy. So if you consider a a medical example, you have an infection that can be cured with penicillin. Somebody develops and produces penicillin and makes it available for free. Penicillin on the shelf, being developed now and as an effective cure for your infection, does you no good unless it's applied. And so whoever the person is who administers it to you is also a requirement for you to benefit from what's been achieved. And so the Holy Spirit is the administrator or the deliverer or who makes effectual in the life of the believer what Christ has wrought out. Monday's lesson, first paragraph, sin has been, had been a dark, dominating force in the lives of the members of Paul's audience. Paul can describe them in their prior existence as walking dead, dead in trespass and sins, yet walking or living as Satan commanded them. Enslaved to sin and Satan, they had no ability to free themselves. They needed rescue. God has, uh, God had done so through his gracious actions in Christ, and Paul celebrates two new blessings of God's grace in the lives of believers, redemption and forgiveness. You can say forgiveness is coming back around here in a minute. What is this paragraph describing? How is it describing sin? It's a condition. A condition, yeah. A condition in which people are enslaved. And it's a terminal condition it's describing. They're dead in it. They're dying from it, right? And I think they're doing a great job of describing this. Uh, Can this condition, as it's described here, this terminal condition that people are enslaved to, can that be resolved by a legal process? Can you think of an, a condition today that most of us are aware of? Maybe you have family members who struggle with it, but it's certainly aware of in our communities that are similar to this. People are enslaved by it, and it's killing them. Addiction. Addiction. That's right. Addictions are a classic example of this description. 
And think, let's use that as a metaphor. People are enslaved to their addiction, and they're dying from their addiction, yes? Okay? Can you, uh, can you deliver and free people from addiction by legal means? I'm going to give you some examples. If God or our nation passed laws that made drug use illegal, will that free people who use drugs and are addicted to them? Uh, how about if we inflict external punishments on people for using illegal drugs? Will that make them free of their drugs? Uh, what if we have an innocent substitute take the addict's place and we inject into the innocent substitute the addictive substance and then execute the, uh, the innocent substitute for taking the substance? Would that then free the addict from their addiction? <laughs> you understand, that's what much of Christianity teaches. What if the Supreme Court declared that the, and the addict is innocent of any wrongdoing and declares them to be free of their addiction? How about if the Supreme Court in heaven were to make a declaration? We declare that they're righteous even though they're not. This is classic penal substitution fraudulent Christianity. What if we have the person who led them into drugs and their pusher arrested and punished? Does that set the addict free from their addiction? Is there any legal action that can be taken that can actually free an addict from their addiction? Get your mind around. This is why there's a form of godliness being taught in the world that Paul says it will happen at the end of time that has no power. It's this penal legal adjustment of standing that you can claim payments and all kinds of legal manipulations. It has no power. It cannot free sinners from sin. What is necessary to free someone who's caught in an addiction? Healing the brokenness and damage within them that causes and reinforces the destructive cycles of addiction. They have to have healing within not just abstinence from. Anybody who's uh, had addiction issues will tell you that an alcoholic who just abstains but doesn't do the work inside, they're called dry drunks. They're not drinking, but all the same pathology is still working. They still crave and they still wish and they still dream about one day drinking again. And the Bible teaches, Galatians 2, 15, 16, and 21, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. There's nothing legal in the process of salvation. Nothing. The Bible has said this, but people read the Scripture through an assumption that God's law works like human law, and so they read in legal language. This is why it's through faith we are reborn, or have the circumstances of the heart by the Spirit, or have the heart, hard, stony, rocky heart removed and a tender heart put within, or have a new heart and right spirit, or have the law of love written upon the heart and mind. We become new creations. We get the mind of Christ. We partake the divine nature. Notice all of the descriptions are nothing legal. They're about recreation, regeneration, renewal. Questions about that? And it's all designed. Isn't it, isn't it exciting and encouraging? Third, uh, third and fifth paragraphs in the lesson, it says, our freedom comes at an extreme cost. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The idea of redemption also celebrates God's gracious generosity in paying the high price of our liberty. God gives us our freedom and dignity. We are no longer enslaved. Note carefully that the idea that God pays the price of redemption to Satan is medieval, not a biblical one. God neither owes nor pays Satan anything. The lesson is correct when it states the idea that God pays the devil a price is a non-biblical idea. That's correct. So we can rule out from the start this price that was paid did not get paid to Satan. But the lesson stops basically there. It doesn't tell us to whom the price was paid. It does tell us the price was his blood. It doesn't tell us why there was a blood price for our sin. It doesn't give us the reason for it doesn't tell us where it's applied or who, to whom it's paid. Have you ever heard that the blood price was required by either God, his justice, 
his law, his wrath, his government, in some way, the blood price had to be paid so justice was maintained. Have you ever heard anything along those lines? So ultimately, the prices in those, in those ideas are being paid to the Father or to the law. And the law, of course, is a, a transcript of his character, so it's ultimately being paid back to God. Is his blood a legal price that God's heavenly court or law required to be paid to legally allow God to pronounce legal pardon and declare the unrighteous who claim the blood to be legally accounted as righteous even though they remain unrighteous? Is that really what's happening? Can you see how I said that? That, that is what is taught. It's taught in the seminaries around this country. Now, we just established that sinners cannot be made righteous through legal means. They can't. They can only be made righteous through the work of the Holy Spirit, taking what Christ achieved and reproducing it in the believer. All legal descriptions are false. All of them. And they interfere with the actual experiential, transforming, healing power of the Holy Spirit. Because what happens is people don't even seek that transforming power because they claim the legal blood price in our book in heaven and they have this false belief that they're secure because the blood of Jesus erases all their sins. I don't have to change. I'm going to sin forever, and that's okay because all my sins, I just confess them, and they're all erased. If you ask the price again, what is the price paid? Well, the answer, both from the lesson and from Scripture, is the blood of Jesus. Uh, In the book, The Cross of Christ by George Knight, and if anybody's read that book, it is a book highly esteemed by those who hold the penal legal model. And, oh, 13 years ago when we had some active discussions with certain theological leaders in this community, this was the book that they, well, not, not quoted. Um, it, it, I, I don't want to say required, because I guess I could have resisted, but, but the book that they encouraged, encouraged, demanded, insisted that we use as a template for our discussions. <laughs> we needed to read this book and then discuss the atonement from this book. And I did, and I did a, a, a very thorough critique of this book. And uh, on page 69 of the book, remember, uh, the lesson and this book agrees that the uh, price was not paid to uh, the devil, and it was not paid to the devil, we agree, and the price was the blood price. But then he goes on and follows, after he agrees it was not paid to the devil, this is what he says in his book. Word pictures such as ransom and redemption are metaphors that teach a lesson, but like Christ's parables, were not meant to be taken literally in all their details. We do not, therefore, have to be concerned with whom the ransom payment went to. Leon Morris writes that in the New Testament, there is never any hint of a recipient of the ransom. In other words, we must understand redemption as a useful metaphor which enables us to see some aspects of Christ's great saving work with clarity, but which is not an exact description of the whole process of salvation. We must not press it beyond what the New Testament tells us about it. To look for a recipient of the ransom is illegitimate. We, must, we, we have no reason for pressing every detail. We must use the metaphor in the way the New Testament writers did, or we fall into error. What, what did they just tell you? Don't think. Don't think. Don't look. Don't ask questions. Believe what we tell you. And in fact, if you try to look for an answer in the Bible, you're going to go into error. It's illegitimate to even look for an answer. I said, to look for a recipient of the ransom is illegitimate to even look. Don't look. It's illegitimate. You can't make this stuff up. Does this actually sound reasonable to you? Is it true that the New Testament never gives a hint of a recipient of the ransom? Is it true that to look is illegitimate? Or is it to to whom the price is paid is one of the most critical pieces of information we need to understand in order to understand the plan of salvation? If someone held your child captive and a ransom was required to free your child, would it be important to you know to whom the ransom is being paid? How about it was being paid to one of your other children or one of your your siblings who kidnapped your child because they wanted some money and they were jealous of your success? Would it be important for you to know that that's who's taken your child? And and Would that be some important element for your ability to trust and or not trust appropriately? Yes, these are important details. Do you think the Bible actually would leave us in the dark about this? 
And is it true? Oh, there is a reason the penal legal models take the position cited above. They took the position. It's illegitimate, and there's no hint. And that's because there's absolutely no hint in Scripture of a penal legal payment being made to anyone. There's no hint because it doesn't exist, because it's Satan's fraud, because it's a lie. And so if you look into Scripture to find who receives a penal legal payment of blood, you can't find it. It's not there. And that's why they say this. And they should take the clue, maybe our premises are wrong. But instead, they shut down further search. Let's see if we can actually find where the scripture is very clear. And remember, let's just sit, take it one step at a time. According to both our lesson and that book, The Cross of Christ, and I agree, the description of the ransom price is the blood of Jesus. The payment is the blood of Jesus, which is still a metaphor. We'll unpack what that means in a moment. But does the Bible tell us, does Jesus tell us to whom the blood payment was made? Well, let's look. Now we can look at the quote. This is Jesus speaking in John 6, 53 to 58. I tell you the truth, unless you eat, you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day, for my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on on this bread will live forever." Doesn't Jesus right here tell us specifically who is to receive the the blood and the flesh? Yes. There's there's not not just a clue. There isn't just a little clue. This is an explicit, repetitive statement that he emphasizes over and again. Wait, but the Bible nowhere gives a hint. Blind guides leading the blind. But the blood's still a metaphor. He's speaking, he's not speaking cannibalism. Yeah. It's a metaphor. And to, for the full meaning of what Jesus is saying about the ransom price of his blood, you must go beyond metaphor to reality. What is the function of a ransom? It has a function, it achieves something. What's it achieve? Freedom. 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 So ransom is whatever price is necessary to free one who has been held in bondage. That's what the ransom price is. Okay? The flesh and blood of Jesus are somehow that price. So so think it through. We are held in bondage. The flesh and blood of Jesus, metaphorical, you have to enter. What is the real? What does the actual flesh mean? It's not human tissue. And what is the blood? It's not liquid, it's not red corpuscles. It means something, but whatever those represent, the reality of what they represent, there's the price that actually frees us from whatever's holding us in bondage. What's holding us in bondage? Lies. Lies. Satan is the father of lies. Lies hold us. As long as we believe the lies, we're held in bondage. Yes or no? Okay. And so what is it that frees us from lies? Truth. Okay. Is one of these metaphors a representation of truth? What does it say in John? Jesus is the word who was made flesh. And he's the word of truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so when you partake of the flesh of Jesus, you're taking of the words of truth that he revealed. You've seen me, you've seen the Father, the Father and I are one. And as the truth that Jesus revealed comes into our hearts, the truth sets us free from the lies. Is that, are the lies the only thing that hold us in bondage? No. What else holds us in bondage? Our own selfish nature. Our selfish nature. Psalm 51, we're born in sin, conceived in inequity. We have a carnal, fallen nature filled with fear and insecurity. We must be, according to Jesus in John 3, speaking to Nicodemus, we have to be born again or reborn. We have to have a fundamental change in the basic motivations of the heart from fear and selfishness to love and trust. In other words, we have to have a new heart. We have to have a new life. Can we generate a new life that's of love and trust and righteousness? Can we generate it? So we have to receive it. And what's the symbol for life in Scripture? In Leviticus, when they, when they sacrifice the animal, it says right in Leviticus 17, the life is in the blood. blood. And so receiving the blood of Christ receives the life of Christ. 
new heart, right spirit, new motives, love and trust. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And so we need both the truth to win us to trust, and we need a new life, a new heart, new motives, new desires. So we need the flesh to destroy the lies, the truth to destroy the lies. That's also then got transferred into new symbols, bread and wine. This is, my, this is the blood of my covenant. This is the, the blood that was shed for you. Okay, remember? He, he's, he transferred those. It's just symbolic of the truth and the life of Christ that we partake. And so the payment price, the price to set us free, we had to have the truth revealed and we have to have a new heart and right spirit. And Christ achieved both of those in his humanity, revealing the truth, destroying the death-causing principle and restoring God's perfect righteousness in humanity. And so the, and so the Bible is very clear. There was, a, there was a high price. And you want to use another, another metaphor, medical metaphor? You have a child who disobeys you and goes and does some illegal drugs of some kind, and, and because of their disobedience and their actions, they have damaged their kidneys and they're in renal failure and they're going to die. But you can donate a kidney. And if you do, you'll, you'll save them. Can we say that to, to save your child, well, you, will, you will have to pay a price? Yes, you will. Donating your kidney will cost you something. Pain, suffering, a, a, a certain level of physical health. Uh, it, it, you would pay the price, though, wouldn't you? Okay. Is that a legal price? Why is that price required? Who requires that? Is there a law that requires that? The trick question, think carefully before you answer. Yes, there is a law that requires that. Well, the law of love as a motivation, but there's an actual, on the kidney element, there's the laws of physical health. Laws of health require kidney functions to filter out the the, um, various uh, waste products or else you become toxic and die. So the laws of health require it. The law of love motivates it. That's right. But it's not a, a legislated law. It's how reality, our God is the God of reality. And he's working to restore us back into harmony with how life works. And so Christ had to come to take up the condition to destroy the death-causing principle, restore the life-causing principle, and destroy the lies to win us to trust. And then the Holy Spirit takes what Christ achieves and reproduces it in us. So the, there was a high price paid, no question about it. Price that we'll never, We will study for alternity the, the infinite costs. If you haven't read our little track, The Infinite Sacrifice of Christ, I encourage you, just a short little track, uh, to, to read that one. Because the, the sacrifice he made is an infinite sacrifice. We really can't fully appreciate it. He gave up permanently, for all eternity future, certain divine attributes like omnipresence. Prior to his incarnation, he had omnipresence like the Father and the Holy Spirit. But he took on humanity. Because the Bible does not say that God so loved the world that he loaned Jesus Christ to us for 30 years. He gave his only begotten son. He took humanity and will reside in humanity for all eternity future. And this is why the Holy Spirit now is his representative on earth because he has restricted his omnipresence. It's an infinite sacrifice that we can't fully appreciate. And there's more. So to whom was the price paid? To us. Because in the same way, when you, when you donate a kidney and you're paying the price, who's the price being paid to? The recipient of the kidney. And that's right, the child. But isn't that also the price of love? That, that's what love costs, yeah. But, but love motivates, right. But, but the need is what determines what is given. Yeah. We needed the truth. Understand this. We needed the truth. God did not need truth presented to him in heaven. We needed a new heart and right spirit. God did not need a new heart and right spirit. So any presentations of Jesus in heaven presenting his blood or his flesh to the Father, think what that implies. It's a lie. Yes. Well, I'm just thinking that ransom is only effective if we receive it. That's correct. That's exactly correct. It's only effective for you, the individual. It's effective for anyone who receives it. But it's also effective in Christ's person, what he achieved, achieved the outcome, and and humanity was perfected in himself. 
And the onlooking universe was secured in their loyalty. They didn't need new hearts and right spirits, but they needed to lie. So the, the truth still dispelled all the falsehoods of Satan in the loyal angels' minds, and those questions are settled and they will never be shaken. So there were still achievements, but the, but the actual new human life and the new heart and right spirit, that's, that's only effective in the hearts of people who receive it and trust. That's right. And John eight thirty two, you shall know the truth. And the truth shall set you free. There's so another text, but the Bible gives no hint of who receives these things. <laughs> the Bible gives gives explicit explanations on the plan of salvation. If you can read the Bible outside of the penal legal blinders that the system of really coming out of Rome has put on people. That that's what that's what the Roman church did. It it re, replaced God's design law with canon or imperial law that's changeable, and they changed it. And, and many Christians have protested some of the changes. The Adventist church is one of the foremost in protesting some of the changes to the law, but they've never actually rejected the whole idea of imperial law. They continue to advance imperial law in an imperial legal salvation system. Last paragraph says, the benefits of Calvary also include the forgiveness of our trespasses. On the cross, Christ takes upon himself the price of our sin, both past and future, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with legal demands. That, and that's supposedly, supposedly this is a quote from the scripture in Colossians 2.14, the uh, English Standard Version, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, unquote. In doing this work of redemption, the forgiveness through Christ, God is acting as our generous Father with the riches of his grace being lavished upon us. Does this Bible text that they're quoting here just simply refute everything I just told you and all the evidence that I've just given you that, in fact, it is legal? Sure, well, I read it first. Does it mean the benefits of Calvary, also including the forgiveness of our trespasses, are, uh, are they saying that God could not forgive us without the death of Jesus? The benefits of Calvary include the forgiveness, that God couldn't forgive us without receiving that payment, that somehow God was required to get that payment in order to be legally able to forgive us. Well, what about the people who crucified Christ? We've already established in our conversation earlier today that Jesus claimed the right on earth to forgive sins by the healing of the paralytic, right? On the cross, did God the Son, who has the right to forgive sins, forgive his crucifiers? Yes. Yes, he did. Did that save them? No. Were they now his friends? Were they trustworthy? Were they loyal? Were they faithful? Were they still his enemies in killing him? Get your mind around this. This idea of forgiveness being extended from God, uh, equaling salvation, is a fraud. God forgives everyone. Everyone is free. God's heart is forgiveness to everyone. But if you don't receive that forgiveness, it doesn't do you any good. And so when you receive it, so Paul says in Romans 2.4, it is the kindness of God that leads us to God's forgiveness first, Without price, without having to be appeased, without having to be propitiated, without having to be pled with, he forgives, and his kindness, his goodness, we see that and we recognize we didn't deserve it. We really, really deserve to be punished, but he didn't punish us. He forgave us instead. And so it says in Romans, God left the sins committed beforehand, unpunished. He didn't punish. And we see his kindness, and his kindness wins us to repentance. And then when repentance, we, open the heart, we receive the forgiveness he freely extends, and then that's reconciliation and we receive a new heart and right spirit, and we're reborn and recreated and regenerated and all this other stuff we've already gone over. People can be forgiven by God and still lost if they harden their heart and hate his forgiveness. That's what you see the people crucifying Christ doing. The death of Christ was not in any means or aspect necessary to change God, influence God, or get God to forgive. He was always for us. We've already established that. The self-sacrifice of God in his son was absolutely required for our salvation, but not to influence God. So the quote from the uh, English Standard Version was, canceling the record of our debts that stood against us with its legal demands. Now let's put up the slide with three other versions. And notice how the three other versions write this. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, he took away Calvary. That's NIV. This is a New King James. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, 
which was contrary to us. And then the good news, he canceled the unfavorable record of our debts with its binding rules and did away with it completely by nailing it to the cross. Do these three versions sound legal? They could if you have an assumption. What, what handwriting is against us? Well, that must be our record of sins. That must be what's in the record book. That must be when the judge opens the record book and sees all those bad things we've done. That must be what's against us, so he has to get rid of that. This is how this is often interpreted. And this is why the English Standard Version just threw in the word legal to make it very clear this is a legal problem with a bad list of stuff, and you're in legal trouble, and it's standing in the record books, and in the courtroom it's going to be against you unless he wipes that record out not what it actually says, and it's not what it actually means. That's how people misinterpret scriptures through the wrong law model. When you turn to return to design law, how reality works, what do you think is written against us? What do you think is the handwriting that's against us? Our condition. <laughs> he said it. Our condition. The actual condition with which we struggle. The sickness of our heart. The pathology in our character, that's what's against us. And do you think God has an accurate understanding and record of what the level of the sin sickness in each one of us is or not? Okay, and so here's how I paraphrase it in the remedy. And I'll read from verses 13 to 15. When, you con- when your condition was terminal, when selfishness reigned unchecked in your minds, and when your hearts were tied tied to the destructive cravings and practices of the world, God intervened and brought you the life-giving remedy, Jesus Christ. He reclaimed you from your terminal condition, nullifying the pathology report that certified you as dead in sin. He made it clear that the handwritten, that the written code with its regulations was only a diagnostic instrument designed to expose our terminal state and teach us the need for a true cure, and he nailed it to the cross. Through his death, he revealed the truth about God and in his humanity eradicated selfishness. Thus, he completely destroyed Satan's weapons of lies and selfishness and triumphed over Satan at the cross. Do you see how Jesus nullifies the pathology report and the diagnostic um, and then the diagnosis of our, our terminal state? See, if you had cancer and you went into an MRI and and had a biopsy done, and the medical records now accurately document the malignancy that you're struggling with, uh, that would be the pathology report. Diagnosing and, uh, and, and speaking out against your terminal state. You're dying of cancer. But if you also, after that diagnosis, go to a physician who has a remedy, and you take the remedy, and the cancer is put into remission, then you, being cured, have nullified the terminal condemnation of the pathology report. That pathology report no longer applies to you because you no longer have malignancies in you. So is that what's nailed to the cross? Right, the pathology report. The, 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 the diagnostic terminal state of our unregenerate heart that we are dead in trespass and sin, when we're reborn and get a new heart in Christ, our old self died and we have a new life in Christ and thus the old condemnation and the old terminal death sentence from the sin condition is nullified. It's still true we had it. still true we were dead in trespass and sin. It's now true we're alive in Christ and we have a new life in Christ. So what does nailed to the cross really do? I mean, it's a metaphor of saying, of saying it's death. So when Christ went to the cross, he destroyed. Okay, so it says that he took upon himself human flesh, that by his death he might destroy him, and holds the power of death that is Satan. Okay, he was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. It says in James, we are tempted, we are dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires. We are born with a nature that tempts us from within. We're not just tempted externally. We have emotions and feelings that that pull us to act in self-centered ways. Selfish ways, yes or no? Yes. Okay? Christ took on a humanity, and all three of those are true, then he had a human nature that could tempt him in those ways. In Gethsemane, do you see him anguishing with powerful human emotions? And are those emotions in Gethsemane urging him to sacrifice himself, or are those emotions tempting him to, to avoid the cross? Those are the temptations of the carnal nature. He had a humanity that he took up through Mary, but he, had a, he also had a nature that he got through his father. So in Christ, while he could be tempted in every way like us, he could overcome them through perfect love and self-sacrifice, and thus he destroyed at the cross the very 
death-causing principles that we all struggle with and rose with a new humanity and come, becomes the source of it. So he nailed to the cross the terminal condition, destroying it at the cross. And the pathology report is what, or the handwriting that, remember the law was given as a diagnostic instrument, it exposes sin. I wouldn't know what sin was if it wasn't for the, for, the, for the law. And so the handwriting exposes how sick we are and how out of harmony we are with God. And this was all nailed to the cross when Christ destroyed the actual sin condition, the infection of fear and selfishness, in the humanity he took upon himself. And we who are in faith with him receive his life, and we are reborn, and it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. So that pathology report doesn't apply to us because it's no longer the old me, but the new me that lives. So it's the carnal nature yep. that was nailed to the cross. And the carnal nature and the pathology report that diagnosed us as terminal. Because we don't have that nature anymore. We're not terminal anymore. And do you, can you think of many, in your little computers, in my little computer, can we think of many other Bible texts that confirm this, what I'm describing? Second Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. And not counting men's sins against them. Not counting men's sins against them. How about um, those, those who are in me will never die? You believe in me. Even though you die, you will never die. You will always live. How is that possible? Because uh, the, the physical body may go to sleep, but we have new hearts and right spirits. We're reborn, we're recreated. So that seems like some, this, this confused people. Did this confuse people? If it did, let's clarify it, because this is, the, this is the heart of the gospel. Yes? Don't some interpret that to mean the, the ceremonial law? Yeah, the Levitical law. Some do. Some do. That the ceremonial, what, what was the point of the ceremonial law? What was the point of it? It was needed because the principles of the Ten Commandments weren't... Uh, right? So Paul says in Galatians that the law was added because of sin or because of trespass. It was added to help expose the sin sickness. And, and as we read in the text a moment ago, no righteousness comes through law, that only the awareness of sinfulness or sickness or sin sickness comes through the law. And so because they didn't understand the principles of the Ten Commandments, God added new ceremonial systems to teach them even more. And that's what the whole ceremony, but it was all added because of sin. There was nothing salvific, nothing saving in any law, but it exposed sin. Does the Bible then contradict itself? We're going to go over just a minute or two. Because the quote in Colossians appears to say that some, in some versions that the record of our sin debt was canceled at the cross. That's what it seems to say in some of those texts, right? But in, in 1 Corinthians 13, it, it says the following. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It does, is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps many records of wrongs. No, it keeps no record of wrongs. And the Bible says, we sure wish God was love. Yeah. Is that what the Bible says? Or does the Bible say God is? God is love. And love is a record-keeping system of your wrongs. Or love keeps no record of wrongs. Is the Bible contradicting itself here? We have these records, but love keeps no record of wrongs. And doesn't the Bible speak in other places about Revelation 20, 12? I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what had been done as recorded in the, in the books. Wait a minute. Love keeps no records. <laughs> But the Bible tells me there's a record and I'm going to be judged by it. No record of wrongs, record I'm going to be judged by. Right. What law lens are you looking through? Hmm. You're looking through a human law lens, this does not add up. And they will teach all types of really horrible, penal legal, contradictory, arbitrary rules or any committees during the thousand years to evaluate all the different records and then weigh up together in a vote how many minutes you got to suffer in the flames before God kills you. you you've heard these things, right? Yes. It's not reality, it's fantasy. Thank goodness. So if you put the Bible together, and it's like, it's like a, a multifaceted bunch of pieces of puzzle. Have you ever done a thousand piece puzzle? How about if you've got a thousand pieces and you take 40 of that thousand and you put those 40 together 
And just with the 40 of the 1,000, you create a picture. Is it likely you've got the right picture? This is what happens. So here a little, there a little from the Bible. People pull their little littles and littles, and they make their little pictures. The more, pic- more puzzle pieces you get, the better and more accurate your picture is. So solve it. let's put the pieces together. No record of wrongs, yet there, there's books. There's books. And it says specifically the book of life in Revelation 20.12, the book of life. And they're judged by what's in the book. Well, it tells us in other places what's written in the book of life. And this is out of Philippians 4.3. I urge you also, true companion, help those women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and rest and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Or in Revelation 21.27, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. Well, more symbolism. Is this actually talking about the name that was written by your parents on your birth certificate? Is that what this means? In Scripture, names represent So it's your character that's recorded here. And so the books that are opened are simply the books that record the reality of who you are. So the best way to understand these would be like medical records. What's recorded in a medical record? The actual condition. If it's a, if it's an accurate one and a good one, it just records what's actually going on in you. And if you want, if you have cancer and you have an accurate record, the, the record will show the state of the pathology and the disease, right? And if you want the record to show that you no longer have cancer, do you rip out all the diagnostic paperwork and stick in white sheets of paper? That's, that's, what, that's what the traditional legal investigative judgment in the Adventist church teaches, that Jesus is in heaven, opening books in heaven, looking at the record of sins and those who claim a legal payment, he rips out the record and sticks in a record of his righteousness instead. You're dying of cancer, you go to a doctor, he promises he'll give you a clean record, a clean bill of health, and when you get there, he opens it up, rips out all the, 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 the MRIs and the pathology reports and sticks in blank sheets of paper and say, here, I've just cleaned your record. Does that help you? No, no. That's traditional Adventist investigative judgment. It's a fraud. The reality, if you're dying of cancer and your record shows that, if you want your record to show you don't have cancer, what has to happen? You have to take a remedy that puts the cancer into remission. And when you do take that actual remedy, the record will show you had the cancer. The record will show where the remedy was applied, and the record will now show you're cancer-free. And so the way we cleanse our heavenly records is not by Jesus doing something in books in heaven. It's by Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, doing something in our hearts here. And that's the true message of the investigative judgment. Our heavenly high priest is directing all the agencies of heaven, including the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit says, I'm not going to, when Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he won't speak on his own. He's going to speak only what he hears, and he's going to take what's mine and make it known to you. And so he's Christ's representative acting on Christ's behalf as our high priest is directing the agencies of heaven for our healing and regeneration and recreation. And the Holy Spirit's working in to cleanse us from sin. And the records will show that. Because the records record our individuality and our character. And we will either be restored to Christ-likeness or we'll be hardened in rebellion. And one of the founders of the Adventist Church, two quotes, and we'll close with these, wrote it this way. This is uh, Letters Manuscript Releases, Volume 5, page uh, Letter 51. Remember, your character is being daguerreotyped. That's an old 19th century word for photographed. Being photographed by the great master artist, in the record books of heaven, as minutely as the face is reproduced upon the polished plate of the artist. What do the books of heaven say in your case? Are you conforming your character to the pattern of Jesus Christ? And then Child Guidance 562, let parents and children remember that day by day they are each forming a character and that, and that the features of this character are imprinted upon the books of heaven. God is taking pictures of his people just as surely as the artist takes pictures of men and women, transferring the features of the face to the polished plate. What kind of picture do you wish to produce? Parents, answer the question. What kind of picture will the great master artist make of you in the records of heaven? That's what's all recorded there. It's reality. We're either submitting to Christ, growing in grace, experiencing his regenerative power, 
writing his methods and laws in our hearts and minds as we live our daily lives and how we treat others. Thus, we're becoming like Christ in character through our faith and trust in him, or we're hardening against him and becoming more and more coercive and selfish and dictatorial and willing to use power over other people. That's all. It's never penal legal. It's reality-based. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are the creator God who built the universe to operate on your principles of truth, love, and freedom. We thank you so much that you have not left us in darkness, that you have given us the word, you've given us the reality of your, of your principles built into the world around us. And we ask for the spirit now to come, the, the spirit that as the regenerating agent to make effectual in our life all that you've wrought out so that we can be renewed, reborn, recreated, and matured to be intelligent friends of yours, to be effective at this time, to take this healing and transforming message to the world that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.